Welcome to the Student Media Podcast, episode number one. Uno. The very first Student Media Podcast. Kind of nervous. My name is Sean Skinner, but from here on out, you'll know me just as Skinner. And I am Tony Peterson, but this point forward, I will be the loaded gun. And why is that? Why are you called uh, the loaded man, gun? Don't get me started. Please don't get me started. That's exactly why. That's I, the point. Yeah. Sometimes I'm going to get worked up and I'm not going to hold back. I'm going to think out loud and tell you what I feel. But So you know. tell me first, Tony, what is the Stewed Media Podcast? You know, it basically it's everything media. You call it music, movies, TV, radio, the gamut of entertainment, so whatever it is, wrestling. We're going to talk to all kinds of people. All kinds of people that are fun to listen to. Fantastic. Yeah, the I, I love stories. the idea. Actors, the musicians, yeah. directors, and television personalities. And how they made their dreams reality. Television personalities. Television. Like our very first guest oh on the Student God. Media Podcast. This is podcast. the only time, by the way, we're going to be able to talk because... Our first guest took the whole hour and a half. Yeah, I think, what did we ask? About He's great. Four <laughs> questions on the first podcast. Uh, Don Shelby, uh, you know him from CCO Television Radio, uh, amongst other places. I mean, you've seen him probably acting locally. Um, you know, he's done some sh- some music videos. He's done He's amazing. A man short of all, films. all skills. So we got to stop by his house, which was an amazing place because he, this is the house he built from the ground up. And it's a green home, so everything has been either recycled or has got you know the green stamp of approval on it. Yeah, it was amazing, absolutely amazing, and uh, you know, and that's everything he talks about too. So not only does he talk the talk, but he walks the walk. He walks the walk. And speaking of what, he walked us through that hallway. Oh my God! To to the room that we did the podcast in, yeah, and it was, was crazy. It was the Hall of Fame, but it was all Don Shelby stuff. So it was photos oh. and awards and. Boy, what I mean, there was there was just ridiculous things. And the bison on the wall. I mean, it was just. (laughs) And there was a bison head on the wall that was the size of a Volkswagen. It was amazing. I mean, but just like Don Shelby, he is an amazing guy, and he is. He uh, he has knowledge in almost every area of life, and uh, you know, like I said, he walks a walk. Absolutely. Uh, If you're looking to share us with anybody uh, that you know needs to hear the show, uh, or you think would like our show, check us out at studmedia.com. Uh, it's a good place to find us, and we've got all the information as far as updates on the upcoming guests and who we, uh, you know, who we talked to in the past, and everything's right there on our website and Facebook and Twitter, all that kind of stuff. Or you can email us too. That's right, studmedia at gmail dot com. If you want to book a guest or be a guest or give us ideas or tell us to basically fuck off. And we've heard that too. <laughs> so if you want to check us out, I suggest please share us with friends. Gift us to family members. Do what you can to share us because there's no other way we're going to be able to, you know, get more listeners unless people are telling other friends about it. Yeah, and then you know what? To be honest with you, it's a great show too. I mean, we have great guests. We have interesting topics that you won't hear on mainstream media type stuff, and we can go behind the scenes and say what we want because it is a podcast. It is a podcast. StudentMedia.com, episode number one with Don Shelby. Here we go. Yeah, 
Yeah, go ahead. Do a quick mic, mic check. Mic check. Test one, two, three, four, five. Yeah, look at that. We're all there. Yeah. Looks okay. Good. So, what do you want to do off the top? Just keep it rolling. Might as well not stop. I want to ask Don Shelby how the hell to do a podcast. Yeah, okay. we. <laughs> I can help you. <laughs> that's that's He's, the first. The, the first there. thing I want to do is just say, how the hell do you do this? Well, the thing that makes it different uh, is you got to be able to say fucking shit quite a little bit. <laughs> yeah, without any it. repercussion from, right. from FCC or, or viewers right. or listeners or anything like that. Now you sound like my eight-year-old daughter. <laughs> so here's a quick nine-year-old daughter bringing her to school yesterday morning. She's driving. We're driving. Uncomfortable moment. She says, uh, Dad, I wonder if the squirrel's nuts are frozen. And I said, I know mine are. And we didn't say a word till we got to school. <laughs> <laughs> she didn't question you. She, she and I both had to look at the sky and wonder what we were talking about. <laughs> so podcast, yeah, this is this is our first deal here. This is uh, we're just getting into it. Uh, obviously, big plans and stuff. But you're the expert. You're the, you know, obviously you've been doing it. Uh, you're how, a media guru. How do you start locally? This? You know, right? Exactly. It's like the how, king of all media. The king of I like all media. media. I like, I like that. Myself. Yeah, it's not just regional. Sternly. I think. I no, think I don't think it expands that's right much further than that. Limit me in yeah. any way. No. Right. No. Yeah. But but how? I mean, we we are just starting out. This is episode one for the Stude Media Podcast. Yes. How the hell do you do this? <laughs> well, you uh, will find it difficult if you don't have somebody who has the time to produce and find guests who thinks exactly like you. Um, that uh, they can carry out the mission of going out to the uh, thousands of people, whether you're Skyping with them or you're doing it by phone or you're having them in studio, um, content is going to be your issue unless you're uh, putting up once a week. If you're doing once a week, then that gives you time to uh, go without a producer and then you can put your heads together. But if you're trying to do a, a once-a-week podcast, that it's going to be difficult to keep content coming because that's, uh, what, 320 guests right, right. a year. And it has to be fresh every time and it has to stay within that genre that you've cut out for yourself. Yeah, we're going once a week. I think that's that's the plan. We're not we're not going to try to overdo it right away. But, you know, it's it's been difficult just even getting the gear together. Guess is, I think the first few guests we're going to get should be, you know, okay. Yeah. But we still we still have to limit you know who we can talk to and who we can't talk to just based on some other things. And with podcasts, the what they call the TSL in broadcasting, that's the time spent listening. Mm-hmm. Um, for downloadable podcasts, they uh, have about a forty five minute listening mm-hmm. uh, compared to a TSL of three minutes uh, for broadcast. So you know by your own experience that if you're driving around, and you're listening to drive. Um, they go to a commercial, you press the button, you go to another station, see what they're doing. Uh, you don't sit and listen through the commercial very often, and, and not many people do anymore because they have control over their device, and especially if, it, if it's uh, a, a downloadable uh, podcast, then you can uh, you have control of them, but they also have control of you, and you always have to keep that in mind. What are they doing right now? Um, so you can't get really boring. Uh, because they'll just go, ah, I don't like that part. And they'll stop listening to the download, and they won't listen to you at all, and then they may not come back. So uh, one of the things you learn in, in commercial broadcasting is called recruiting. So you have to be able to keep the people who are listening, and then they're telling someone you ought to listen to this, and then you re- keep recruiting listeners until your numbers start to go up. Are you tracking right now? Do you know how many listeners that you'll be able to get 
Are you going through iTunes? Are you going yeah. through? Yeah, we're okay. going to go through iTunes. So they have, they have an algorithm that will uh, check the number of downloads, and you can track that. And, and what you want to see, of course, is an, an upward trend that you're building all the time. If you're not building, then you've got to figure out what you're doing, whether it's uh, not promoting it correctly, not getting into the right genre, um, uh, not doing enough promotion, not getting your name out there enough. The Tom Bernard podcast that you're featured on, and your your, your name has been changed officially. Yeah, to officially to featuring, featuring Don, Don Shelby. Shelby. Uh, yes. You know, it's it's. I, re- I required that. You did require yes, because yeah, okay. everybody else is just them, right? But if I'm going to be on it, I have to. You know, it couldn't be starring because it's starring Tom Bernard, mm-hmm. but um, but featuring. So you're a featured player, yeah. and it can't be introducing because I'm too old. Sure, for that. sure right. Yeah, <laughs> uh, you just you've been going. introduced, right? Yes, but that podcast has only been around. For a year, a year, and it's doing extremely well. Two million, yeah, two million nice. discrete downloads a year. So, how is that uh, coagulation of the of the group? Do you guys get along pretty good? And yeah, well, Tommy and I have known each other for thirty five years, and <clears throat> Tom uh, has this reputation of being this arch conservative, and I have this reputation of being DFL Don. Um, neither of which is true, but that's the labels that have been put on us. I've always known Tom as this incredibly generous uh, person, um, roughneck. I get along with roughnecks. Um, I grew up in kind of roughneck territory, and 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 I think the thing that uh, Tom likes about me is that I've never been afraid of him. Everybody else is afraid of him. They're just afraid of this giant bull of a man who continues to lift weights, who just continues to. Uh, take on the most uh, egregious situations and say very controversial things. But when he would get into the biggest jams of his life, first call he'd make would be to me. Hmm. And I'd talk him off the ledge and try to give him some some advice on how to move on from the, the criticisms that were in the newspaper and other, other personalities were saying about him on the air. Uh, because he was, you know, he makes news from time to time with the things that he says. Right. And uh, so we have been this, uh, we've had this close friendship for uh, 35 years. It's just no one's ever known it. In fact, we were thinking about writing a book calling the friendship that dare not speak its name because if anyone found out that Tom Bernard and I were friends, people would go, wait a minute, that can't be. That is a mathematical impossibility. That Congress, Congress would be kind of... Um... They, Congress, <laughs> uh, Congress would have to change completely. They go, you mean you really can what? disagree and be friends? You can shake hands yeah, across well, the no, aisle. No, no, no. Wow, that's amazing. I, yeah. that, that is amazing. Now I his, never... his podcast is two, two hours a day, right? That's really? a daily podcast. Then it goes to uh, broadcast uh, on the ticket. Mm-hmm. But I think we're dropping that this year in 2014. Um, and that, that's sort of a sports thing and, and none of us are, are comfortable doing it. Although it's fun because you get Mm -hmm. to bring all the sports people in and talk about something that is not, uh, meaningful in, uh, the, in terms of, uh, the public franchise and the ability to uh, develop an informed opinion that will help you, um, sort out the, the problems facing, uh, the state and the community and the nation and the world. But uh, sports still is, is, is fun to talk about from time to time. And we have uh, hopes that we'll kind of fold some sports into, uh, we'll have sports guests in some podcasts. And that's part of the deal is keeping it fresh. Not uh, That way you can reach a larger audience. If you narrowly uh, broadcast your podcast to just 
uh, one group of people, then that's the group of people who will always be there and no one else will ever sample. So uh, if you have, um, if it has an anything goes personality, your podcast has an anything goes personality, and it relies on the host um, to be able to guide, to pick the, the proper guest and then to guide that guest into areas that people will really uh, find interesting. The people he success. has on the podcast, besides yourself, I mean, he's... His family. His wife. His, and his, Tony his, Lee he brought back. I love Tony Lee. Right. Uh, but then Tony ran into contract problems with the station oh. he works for, and they won't let him do that. So oh, Tony's kidding. off. So, oh, that's too bad. Uh, so it's uh, Catherine, his wife, uh, Alex, his daughter, Andy, uh, his son, runs the board mm-hmm. and contributes as a mic at his station. And then uh, it's populated by uh, some rotating guests, occasionally Dr. Ralph Basham uh, once a week will be there, JB, uh, John Blackshear will be there. He's he's it's it's primarily comedy based though, right? I mean, informative or last the two days, the Thursday and Friday are comedy based because that's when the comedians are in town, right? Um, getting ready to do the weekend shows at the House of Comedy or Acme or wherever they're doing the shows, and so we get national guests, and and it's been uh, great fun talking to these. Do you go to comedy shows people. at all? Do you like to go to those comedy venues? At yeah, all? I like going to comedy, and uh, I because when I was working the ten. Uh, for so many years, it was d- difficult to get out and do those things. And weekends, I kind of hid. I tried to stay away from uh, any big action, though I was probably in a tuxedo 30 of those 52 weekends um, at some gala, you know, trying to raise money for someone. Tuxedos are allowed in comedy shows, though, I think, right? You can get into <laughs> You can, but you're also pointed out. In fact, yeah, right. I, I, was at, uh, <laughs> I was at the comedy store something in, in New York on 78th Street, West 78th Street, and a black comedian was on stage, and the comic was uh, doing a great set, and, and my daughter and I were sitting uh, there. She was going to school in New York, and uh, he just stopped his, his bit because he was staring at me the whole time, and he <laughs> looked at me and he said, Sir, where are you from? And I said, uh, Minneapolis-St. Paul, Minnesota. This is my daughter. Um, he said, Would you please stand up? And I said, I'd be happy to. And I stood up in the middle of this big comedy club, and the comic said, Ladies and gentlemen, the whitest human being in the world. (laughs) (laughs) I thought for sure he was going to go with Monopoly on that one. (laughs) That is unbelievable. So you'll be ridiculed with a a tuxedo pretty much anywhere you go besides a a gala. Is it it hard to go places being the person that you are and, and having to... People want to talk to you. I was at Cub today, and they wanted to find out so much about you. I want to tell you a story, Tony, because uh, I have, and I have to tell it in such a way as people don't go, "Oh, that big show off, know it all, <laughs> bullshit artist." <laughs> I was famous when I was six. I was famous when I was twelve. And I was famous when I was seventeen. I came from a town of one hundred nine people, uh, but I had this this intense desire to be noticed. And one of the ways you could be noticed in my small town was through athletics. And so uh, I ended up winning championships in swimming, and I ended up as a three-meter and two and, and a ten-meter diving platform diving. Uh, I was a basketball player for 30 years. Um, and in Indiana, where I'm from, 
if you're a basketball player and if you're all conference or all state and you have the jacket and it has all the patches on it, you walk down the street and old men get off the sidewalk really? to allow you to pass. Wow. Yeah, and you're, and you're 15 wow. or 16, 17 years old. And you had one. Yeah. Wow. And so um, people would ask for my autograph when I was 16. Mm-hmm. Little children would. Uh, I wore a sweatband. I wore a sweatband. I was one of the first people to wear a sweatband. Nobody ever wore a sweatband, and they didn't have these kind of she fancy Nike sweatband. <laughs> mm-hmm. Mine was really a, a welder sweatband. It was just a sponge on a, an elastic wow. string. Um, but I had uh, something always burned my eyes, so I, the coach gave me something to stop the sweat from coming down out of my hair into my eyes. And actually, it was hairspray. I didn't realize really? that at the time. Uh, <laughs> Hence the nice eyebrows. Yeah, I, I was going to say, I, I add that to show you that I'm, I'm not the pompous asshole that everybody thinks I am. But it was hairspray, and, and I, if I just washed my hair before a basketball game, then I wouldn't have that problem. Oh, yeah. But I went, Coach, my eyes are burning. And then he thought, well, I maybe mean, you got acid sweat or some kind of shit. So then he put some things on me. and, well, and see, I see you put uh, Fruit of the Looms over your head there. You <laughs> That's <know>? true. <laughs> but then I go back to school. I go back yeah. to school. I've been away to college one year. I come back to school, and I walk in at recess. And there are 40 children in the, in the gymnasium, and they all have a sweatband. They all have a sweatband. <laughs> but on. you started. See? And, so, you, you know, and you're 17, 18 years old, and you go, well, you know. So, uh, and I've, I've had a whole different way of looking at uh, uh, these kind of intrusions or interruptions, as other people would call them. Uh, I, I, I am that guy. I'm the guy that, um, not a stalker, but... If I'm at a restaurant and Paul Newman walked in, yeah. I'd be going. Which would be a freaking miracle. Would you, would you look over there? Well, I know he's dead. <laughs> but if I were in yeah, a restaurant right. at some point in history and Paul Newman walked sure. in, I'd be going, okay, just over my left shoulder. Okay, don't make a big deal. <laughs> don't just look, look right at don't him. Don't look right at him. And then you go, I have got to go. I have got to go over there and say something. I know he's with his wife and his children. I know that, but I've just got, I'm going to have to be the asshole. I'm going to be that guy. And so I, I am that guy. I am the guy because I'm from, I'm from country. Mm-hmm. And you see somebody famous, and, and, you're, and, you, and something happens to you, and you know you're going to walk up and go, I am such a dumbass that I did that. But you can't stop yourself. And, in fact, I'll tell you a story. Uh, Paul Majors uh, had been on the air a couple of years. I got off the tent. He got off the tent. Um. I stopped at Byerly's to buy some stuff for breakfast. And Paul Majors was there. Oh, He was there. He was shopping. It was about Incognito? Or? No, no. Oh, really? He had just gotten off the air, and it was uh, maybe 1130 or something, and he was pushing his thing. And I'm, like, angling to try to get in that lane to, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, try to accidentally you know, run I'm into following, him. I'm following. I'm stalking him. I'm, like, behind him going, it's Paul Majors. It's Paul Majors. <laughs> Okay, Paul Majors is like 12, and he's been in the business like three years, and I've got 20 years on him and some awards. But I'm going, that's Paul Majors. I can't believe that. <laughs> and I finally got to where I could walk up, and we were facing each other. And I went, hey, Paul, it's interesting to see you here. How you <laughs> what doing? a coincidence. Yeah. Uh, so I'm that guy. So when people come up and say, Mr. Shelby, can I have your autograph, please? Of course. Relax. Relax. I'd love to give you an autograph. I don't know what you're going to do with it. Not make it some joke, you know. Right. Throw right. it away as soon as you get out of so, here. It's a good story for those people. 
So what changed? You're, you're doing sports and you end up writing a book, Seasons Never End, and uh, which we'll talk about in a minute. But uh, Lavina Putnam, is that where the, the yep. crux came and changing of your <laughs> yeah. life? The, it did have an the effect. Bullshit artist? It, it did have an effect <laughs> on me. Yeah, Lavina was my speech teacher and my senior class advisor. And on the day of my graduation, one of the supposed to be the happiest day of your life at that by that time in your in your growth and she came up to me she says may i talk to you for a second i said yeah and she said you're going to be a failure how old were you at this time teacher 17 18 i was getting ready to graduate and i said what she said no you're going to be a failure she was my speech teacher also and and she said no i have to tell you uh, and then, then the first time I ever heard a teacher cuss, she said, you're nothing but bullshit. That's all you are, just bullshit. You obviously, you never went to Catholic school then, I take it. Well, <laughs> no, I didn't. She would have been beating uh, This is a did, public yeah. school. And and she said, uh, I know that because you're the, uh, I've been teaching 30 years, you're the very best uh, person I've ever had in speech class. I can give you any assignment. I can, uh, off the top of your head, you're better than anyone I've ever had. You don't have to write a speech. You are better off the top of your head than anyone I've ever had. And But she said, that's bullshit. You're making that stuff up. And you can't do that in life. You've, you've got to study, and, you've, and you don't study. You just All you want to do is play and, and drink beer and, and chase women. And, and when it comes to school, uh, you don't apply yourself, and you just bullshit your way through, and everybody in the class and the teachers love you, and they give you good grades, and you're going to graduate, but then you're going to get into college, and you're going to get in life, and you're going to get in a job, and you're going to find out bullshit doesn't work. Well, many years later, I, I just won my second George Foster Peabody, and uh, which is commonly referred to as the broadcast equivalent of the Pulitzer Prize. I called my coach, my basketball coach, and I said, do you have Lavina Putnam? Is she still alive? And he said, yeah, she's down the road from me. And I said, give me her number. And so <laughs> I called I called Miss Putnam, and I said, Miss Putnam, uh, this is Don Shelby. And she said, Bob Shelby? Because I'm my brother. And I said, no, I'm Don. I'm his brother. She went, oh, oh yes, yes, yes. 65. And I said, yeah. And she said, well, I was, I think, well, I was the advisor in your class. Well, yes, you were, Miss Putnam. She goes, what in the world would you be calling me now? Where are you? You're in California or somebody? I said, no, I'm in Minneapolis. Uh, she said, well, I know, I heard somebody say something. Your cousin or somebody said that you had gone away and got into some, are you in theater? Or in, in, until I said, I'm in television. I'm a television journalist. And I said, I want, I'm calling you for a specific reason because tonight, um, uh, is a very special night for me. And I said, but I want to ask you, do you remember uh, uh, my graduation night? She said, oh, honey, I don't. I'm sorry. I don't remember it. It's been so many years ago. And I said, well, you brought me aside. And you told me that I was going to be a failure. And she said, oh, my goodness, did I say that? And I said, yes, you did. And you said that to me, to my face. And you said I was a bullshit artist and that I was going to fail. And I said, I'm calling you on the evening that I've uh, just been awarded my second George Foster Peabody, uh, and if you don't know, that's the Pulitzer Prize of, of broadcasting uh, for my journalism, and I'm doing pretty well. And she said, oh, I'm so happy for you, and, uh, and I'm, I'm just mortified that I said that to you. And I said, no, first of all, 
I'm glad you said that to me because I would not have done this if you hadn't said that to me because I had to prove you wrong. And I had to prove everybody wrong who said that I would never make it, which was 99% of the people who ever met me. And, uh, and I said, and you remember you called me that bullshit will not uh, get me through life. And she said, oh, I hope I didn't say that. And I said, no, you did. Um, she said, well, I was obviously very wrong. And I said, no, I just found a career field where that was an asset. <laughs> <laughs> See, kids, I bullshit it, pays off. I put it to work. I put That's bullshit to work. To, I yeah. like it, hence the bull on the wall. Huh? Lavina so you, uh, So you joined the Air Force, then you come back and do radio. You get right away into radio? Well, I was in radio uh, the whole time. Well, see, I was in an un, what's called CONUS Unbalanced. So uh, in the continental United States, there was no job for what I did overseas. And I was in a career field at a top-secret um clearance and and I'm on a 50-year declassification downgrade and I can't talk about what I did those two years of the four years uh, but I can talk about the other two years and those were basically being everything you can possibly imagine was a great training grounds like SNL mm-hmm. um, because you're one guy and you're running an entire television station and you are the director and the switcher and and you are the lighting guy and the sound guy and the host of every show, and you're and you're doing sixteen hours of broadcasting a day, and uh, so much like the headband, you you created the one man band, <laughs> the, one the one man, man band, like Robin Williams in uh, that Vietnam show. Yeah, that, very uh, very similar to what he was doing, um, and and I I would do uh, so we had the uh, we needed a movie host because we'd get these movies sent around. <laughs> AFRTS would send these movies around, and so you get a cowboy movie, and you get a horror movie, and you'd get a period historical movie or whatever and then the host of the show then had to be in the character of that movie and so uh, I was uh, when there were scary movies I was count ridiculous um, are these pornos or are these regular? <laughs> no, these were, these were actual non-pornographic. Uh, Read dick. Yeah, you listen. Nice. Um, but but it gave me it took me to the edge of the stuff that you could actually do. I mean, I was uh, Cowboy Floyd, uh, and my theme song was <laughs> Bird Dance great. Beat by the Trash Man, uh, and it's just weird. I mean, you know what what is that? A cowboy song? That's not a cowboy song. Bird, bird, bird. So. Uh, I like did that guy with Pro- Pro- Proton Man. I uh, we didn't have any. Of course, you have uh, nothing. I'm, I'm always in these remote sites. You got nothing. So Proton Man on these science fiction movies. I dressed up. Um, I wrapped my entire body in uh, tinfoil because I had the guys at the mess hall would bring down these giant industrial rolls of tinfoil, and I'd wrap myself in tinfoil. I'd just become this tinfoil man, and uh, with with uh, because uh, this one uh, set was in in a remote site in alaska so everybody had uh uh these uh, sun lamps and you had to have these little glasses <laughs> these tiny glasses with elastic bands and i had no so you <laughs> whole head full of things <laughs> these little things and i had a dymo label marker was my gun please and tell me you have a picture i would love there, there are pictures all over the place oh, man, yeah I there's pictures because I, I in fact when i first got to town yeah. in minneapolis st paul I get a call from a guy, and he says, uh, is this Don Shelby? I said, yeah. And he goes, can I get your autograph? No, he <laughs> said, are you are you the same Don Shelby as Cowboy Floyd? Oh, and I, oh, 
And he had been in the service. Yeah. Oh. He lived out in Tassel, Cocado or someplace. <laughs> and I brought him down, Paul Lobey. Yeah, come on down, man. I remember he worked in the mess hall, and he, he was the guy that was supplying me stuff. And and we also did public service announcements. So so I'm I'm at one point, I'm being count ridiculous. <laughs> and uh, I, I'm looking like Dracula. Uh, but it's New Year's Eve, so I'm also in a diaper. That's all I have. My my makeup on the face is is the is Dracula is is Bram Stoker's Dracula, <laughs> and I'm completely naked except for a diaper. It's <laughs> not a yeah, porn. Baby I'm, the, New Year. I'm the baby New Year guy. <laughs> and this thing is like nobody nobody's going uh, out to drink or anything. Just, you have to watch this show because right. of crazy I stuff. Start today. drinking. And uh, anyway, Paul brings out. Um, uh, some leftover chicken from the from the night meal, and um, and so I'm sitting on set and and eating the chicken in between uh, uh, cut ins, and uh, and previous to that, the cut in before that, because we had to do public service announcements because you're you're on the air as a public service, and the people in the community, in this Inuit community in King Salmon, they watch the this show too because we broadcast them, and. Um, Bobby Yerkes, I remember that name today. Bobby Yerkes had called in. He was about 10, and uh, he had lost his cat, uh, cat Puffins. And so uh, I had to um, say, in the, in the character of Account Ridiculous, I'd have to say, oh, by the way, <laughs> by the way, Bobby Yerkes has called. He's lost his, He's lost his cat Puffins. <laughs> Because <laughs> I can't break character, I got to be the guy, right? I can't go. Uh, no, we interrupt this program in because I was on television. I can't take the makeup off, so I can't do that, you know, off screen. So I have to say, Bobby Yerkes lost his cat. Then we go back to the movie. Then I'm sitting out here, and Paul has brought me in, and I'm eating the um, uh, chicken. I'm eating the chicken leg. You mean puffins? <laughs> now you now you're thinking like oh, I'm thinking, oh, good, yeah. but no. Anyway, as happens, this is all film. It's not videotaped. So uh, we've got the multiplexes running the, the film, and it breaks. Because it breaks. I mean, you're shipping stuff through frigid temperature and just, you know, brittle right, right, right. celluloid. And it breaks. It just flap, 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 you know, and it's big white on the screen. So I run back, and I pull the switcher down so it's it, that it's now it's the studio. And I run back in the studio, but I, still, I realize I got the chicken in my hand. <clears throat> and I went... Obviously, a technical difficulty. Oh, and Bobby, <laughs> we found your kitty. <laughs> oh, that poor, that poor ten-year-old. Poor Bobby. Oh, Bobby, your <laughs> <laughs> but, but you you found and then I got you know of course hauled into the, the base commander's office and told I could never do another television show as long as I live and then there was a great protest among the people because I was taken off the air for a week and they went crazy really? there was going to be a base revolt so it was it was traditional media but it was you had some liberties there obviously oh, I mean you but had I didn't know everything. what the liberties were see that's the that's the important point Sean that's what I was trying to find I wasn't even trying to find it. I was just doing anything that I wanted to do, and then I'd hear, you can't do that. And then you go, why? Why can't you do that? And in the back of my mind going, no, you can do that, because people laughed and, and they loved it, and they demanded that you stay on the air. So you can do that. You're saying there's some rules. So uh, abiding by these rules never really uh, struck me as the intelligent thing to do. And so when we started the I team and whatever we were breaking rules left and right we were doing 
incredible stuff that had never been done before in television. Uh, because if you don't try new things, if you don't test the limits, you don't know what's going to work and, and how you're going to accomplish things. Do you and think so, that those rules uh, ever hindered you in your, in your role in traditional media? The rules didn't uh, on, on uh, that I was, in fact, we were inventing new rules. We were keep pushing the envelope further and further out. But was that being encouraged? Uh, not at first, no. In fact, the I-Team wasn't encouraged at first. The I-Team, uh, we took the three highest paid reporters and put them in a room and took them off the street and took them off the air. I was anchoring. I was a weekend anchor, so I was off the air now and, and working just uh, solely in the I-Team doing four stories a year. And I remember talking to Hanberg, and, uh, the, the news director at the time, and he said, how many stories you guys will do? And I said, four stories. And he said, four stories each. And I said, no, four stories. And four I bet, stories. I'm guessing he My, didn't like that. Oh, he hated that. Yeah. And he said, you better win the goddamn Emmy, <laughs> the first story, or I'm closing this son of a bitch down. And we won the Emmy, wow. national Emmy. Of course. That first wasn't the story. crib story, was it? Which were... Nope. The first story uh, the I-Team did was housing inspectors, now lost in peace. But we were as a team. We were all working on it. So each sure. of us had pieces in it. Nice. Uh, so we all shared in the spoils of, of the awards. And um, and it won the Emmy. And then we won five more. Wow. Five more national wow. Emmys. Now, you figure uh, 8,000 television stations in competition, including uh, – and these there's only one Emmy given to a local television station every year in public service. And uh, in 12 years, we won it five times. Wow. And we were nominated all 12 years. Wow. We were, in the, we, were, yeah, we were finalists, the top five finalists, and won it five of the years. Did that change the industry, do you think? Yes, it changed it uh, incredibly because, uh, you know, it is a business. And doing long, uh, dull stories had always been the bane of uh, television and radio. Uh, because people just stopped listening. They get boring. It didn't fit what they wanted. It wasn't anything they were interested in. But Mike Sullivan, who went to Frontline after he left the I-Team and uh, just died uh, three months ago, um, as we were planning, Mike and I were planning, he was in Boston at WGBH, we were planning to meet um, uh, in late summer uh, with all of the old I-Team guys, the first I-Team uh, gathering, first reunion, and he was going to bring cameras. Uh, he was going to bring uh, all audio equipment and stuff. And we were going to shoot a documentary about that uh, incredible time. That because, would have been amazing. Because we, I mean, we'd go to national conferences, and here, here's 2020, and here's mm -hmm. 60 Minutes, and right. because they're all there, and and stations that had investigative units, um, uh, MAQ had an investigative unit. BBM had an investigative unit. Cron had one. So there, there were investigative units operating, but they were doing, you know, tickets. Mm -hmm. uh, they were doing, uh, you know, the Maytag didn't get fixed, and they would go back into the appliance store and make sure there's right. action right. news kind of problem solver stuff. And we were putting bad guys in jail. I think we put 27 people in jail. And, and we got, got one out, too. We got one out. Yeah. We got right. one, one guy one accused of rape and given a life sentence. In, uh, in Houston, Texas, and we uh, proved scientifically that he could not have been the killer, and he was let free. Wow. Do you find that, that the new media you work in now, the, the rules are almost non-existent? I mean, there are still rules, but they're not, they're, they're, there's not as many boundaries as there were in, in traditional media that you... That you generally you know, in language. Group. Generally in language. Right. But 
uh, the, the rules that you have to abide by are the rules of propriety set by the audience, uh, not by the government. Right. You have to um, know how far you can take an audience uh, in saying things. Um, it was a conversation that, that Tom and I have had over the years that, uh, that if, and Tom's one of the finest broadcasters ever. I mean, he, he the only, the only market in the world where, uh, Howard Stern absolutely failed. Got obliterated. Mm-hmm. I, just, I remember that. And right. Tom beat his ass mm-hmm. and, and Howard Stern's never forgiven him for that mm-hmm. because he, he, he left Minneapolis St. Paul with his tail between his legs. Right. He came here big to do. I'm going to be the big guy. And he career. still talks shit from New York. Yeah. You know, even though nobody here could hear him. Right. And it didn't even last how long? A year? Not even that. No, no, year. no. About six months. Yeah, 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 yeah. it was just a total failure. Yeah. Because Tom owned that corner. He did. Um, and Tom felt like he had to say some things. He pushed some things. And he would say things that I knew he didn't believe hmm. in order to get that audience. Well, the audience liked it, but the press didn't like it. And so the press came down on him pretty hard. Mm-hmm. Then his fans rallied around him. Uh, his station somewhat, not so, not so much as it could have, and but he was left out uh, to uh, hang to dry for a long, long time on a lot of these things, the four or five things that he said that that were, um, for instance, um, oh Paul Wellstone, who was uh, a pincushion for uh, the the slings and arrows of uh, a lot of conservative. Uh, talk radio people um i'm against the war in iraq and whatever and uh and tom's a big uh, supporter of the military Mm -hmm. and and soldiers and he and he said uh why don't you drop dead well next day he did oh Oh my he said that that close to the uh, plane crash yeah and then uh, the newspaper. But when Tom says that sort of thing, know. it's... Oh, no, it's, no. He says, I want to say drop it's dead. It's what you say to a guy. You say that's yeah, the guy from the street. Speech, ah, right. drop dead. Well, they took that, and oh, no. and it made it sound like uh, he was wishing death upon him in the death game. The, the juxtaposition, that was terrible. It was horribly hurtful uh, to Tom um, because he was put in this position of wishing... Paul Wellstone dead, and he died. Of course, this circumstance huge uh, outpouring of grief, and then so Tom is relegated to this awful category that people get into. <clears throat> and, and and basically, I've just said to Tom, you have to learn what I learned. There's some things that you can say, and there's some things you can't say, and it's not because there are rules about it. There are just some things that can come back and bite you in the ass. You have to be careful you don't set yourself up for failure. So it's a proactive protection in a sense. Yeah. yeah. So be careful what you say, and that doesn't, you can talk around it. Tom says it limits what you can say. <laughs> I say it only limits how you say it. Right. You can still say the same thing. If he had not said drop dead on your If he would have said get lost. Or, get lost or, you know. You know we don't need that kind of representation at a time when America is under threat from blah, 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 blah. Um, any of that would have sounded okay, and he would still have made his point. Did you have a hard time uh, being his friend and also working for a competitor covering that? Did we cover? Or I'm sorry. Yes, did you did at the time it. cover it? We did cover it. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, and, and how did that affect how you presented it? Uh, we didn't. We didn't uh, raise the issue that he had said it. 
we covered the aftermath. We did the follow-on. So this had already blown up. Right. And there were, of course, there were protesters going to the station. And he received 250,000 death threats. Wow. 250,000 death threats. He had to hire armed snipers to uh, be on his roof to protect his family. Hmm. 250,000 death threats because the, of that comment. There's wow. some irony there. <laughs> and all the, he and, said and, was dropped in. You went through that, yeah. too, so you have empathy with him. Yeah, no, I understand that you yeah. uh, you have to read the tough lines sometimes. Mm-hmm. And I was reading tough lines, and people get mad at me. So mm-hmm. I'd say, uh, this judge is, is having sex with uh, a child. Everybody and they hated me. Uh, the um, the, uh, the State Bar Association took out full-page ads in both the Minneapolis uh, papers and the St. Paul papers wow. uh, condemning me. Um, and these were all my sources. These were good friends of mine. <laughs> and, in fact, I got one call, Tony, that uh, after, after reporting that this judge, Crane Winton, was having sex with uh, underage boys and, and, uh, and then sitting in judgment of people accused of the same crime. And uh, had him nailed, and I and I got I took about maybe six hundred calls. I stayed until geez two in the morning, just answering the phones. And those were the ones that were just coming through to me, and the and the board that probably took another two thousand. And I finally get a call, and they're all hating me. I get a call from one of my sources, an attorney, um, not on this story, but a source on other stories. And he called me and he said, I saw your story tonight, Don. And he said, I've been trying to get through and I just wanted to call you tonight. And I said, gee, he said, to finally hear a friendly voice is, is uh, amazing to me. And he said, here's what I'm going to do tonight. I'm going to get on my knees and I'm going to pray to Jesus Christ that you rot in hell. Get out. Oh. I'm a friend of mine. It's a friend of yours. Friend. <laughs> because I had, you know, you have to understand the, the structure of the well. judicial system the, the the judge that I it, w- w- it was in essence the father of the family, mm-hmm. and I had said something bad about the father of the family. I didn't accuse him of a heinous crime, and everybody said I was wrong. And everybody said I was wrong, and they brought all the lawsuits. They did everything that they could to try to uh, prove it wrong, and then he um, he was indicted and found guilty based on the evidence. And did you get any sort of? You know, I'm sorry, or you got any, 600 calls of people saying I'm sorry. Any apologies? Oh no, there were never no. any apologies. Yeah, no. I had a. Uh, let me tell you how, how it works. Sometimes, you know, I, I uh, grew up in in a place where you uh, didn't settle your problems uh, through um, through um, moderated debate. Um, you had to fight your way home from Cub Scout meeting where I came from, and I've never uh, been fearful of mixing it up. My nose has been broken seven times. Uh, it shows that I'm not a really good at uh, settling <laughs> issues, <clears throat> but and I don't I don't know what my total is on on noses broken on the uh, other side. But um, I got an email one time, and the email said uh, I had said something. I don't know what I said. I can't even remember. It's not it's inconsequential. But uh, it, dear Mr. Shelby, and then it names my daughters by name. Email uh, names my daughters by name, and and uh, which is uh, creepy, and so, and says he feels sorry for them that they had to be raised in the household with me as the head of the household, and uh, and he signs it, and and it's got his you know email return, hit return, and I wrote, uh, dear sir, uh, do you want a discussion or a fist fight? I'm good for both of those. 
Good. Meet me anywhere, anytime. Mine I've heard from who gets Second, yeah. he makes it personal. See, that's a thing. You know, people's bark or, uh, gets me so frustrated. You did that. I did that once to a Minneapolis cop, and he went okay, and he came down mm-hmm. and waited for me outside the station. <laughs> so it doesn't work all the time, Tony. <laughs> Hence the, the bluff, seven right? seven uh, nose breaks. <laughs> you 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 know you're doing all these new things. You, you bring me the news. Yep. You're, you're working with Rick Cupcella. Yeah. You're you know it's new media. It's mm-hmm. it's it's gathering news. Uh, you're doing the podcast. I mean, you're you're keeping yourself so much more busy. You've told me in the past that you, you're so much more busy now than you were uh, even when you were working the 10. Oh, yeah. Yeah, very much more because you only had one place to go to work. Now I'm going today. I'll go to four places to work. How are these new new jobs, uh, these new positions challenging you unlike the 10 was challenging you? I've, uh, they're not challenging. Uh, are they just fun? Is that? Yeah. It's, you're using your acquired talents to do kind of the same thing you always did. And which is uh, bullshit. Yeah, just yeah. bullshit. Yeah. And and I've and but it's, you know, bullshit makes it sounds like yeah, the way we use it uh, in the vernacular sounds like you're just making it up. None of it's true. Um, what I do is I, I read uh, probably 400 books a year. I, I read abstracts from scientific journals uh, constantly. Uh, I subscribe to all of the the. Uh, major news magazines and, and uh, both newspapers, and so uh, fluency can be construed as bullshit. And especially if it's broad, if you uh, are talking about uh, the Somali community on this side, um, and you know some inside stuff about the Somali community because you've studied or you've spent time with them, and then you go to uh, climate science, and you know as much about that as you do about, and, and so whatever they bring up, it sounds like you're bullshitting because you you have studied that you, you know. and you're adding something. And I, I've got this a uh, little bit of anger in me that um, I'm I'm classified as a a, a know-it-all, a pompous windbag, and that's fair. Um, and I don't, I don't think that that's uh, wrong. I don't think that's a wrong observation. It might be tempered somewhat, but uh, it may not be as, as uh, fulsome as that. But, um, but I believe this. I believe this. If someone asks you a question, they would like to have an answer, and they would like to have the accurate answer. If I have the accurate answer, am I supposed to say, when the question is asked, well, I, I really don't know that. Just so they'll like me better? Or do you answer the question? Do you answer the question? Well, I think you answer the question. I th- also think that bullshit can be, constri- like, people can misconceptualize or, or however you want to put it. If they hear you having fun on the podcast and you're, you know, you're just goofing along with whoever the guests are and with Tom and with everybody else and you're, and you're just chiming in. I mean, I think people can construe that as bullshit as well, yeah. right? I mean, it's just you're kind of bullshitting your way through the two hours, and and you know you're having a good time. Yeah, right. And and here's an example of of how you sometimes have to be uh, careful uh, in categorizing stuff I say as bullshit or uh, outright lie. So 
uh, Capcella and I went to New York for the Anchorman 2 um, premiere at the Beacon Theater. And uh, I said, you know, one of the, one of the best performances, uh, as we were flying out, I was talking to Cup, and I said, one of the best performances, I think, in both Anchorman 1, and I can't wait to see what Anchorman 2 is, is Bill Curtis's yeah. role. I said, uh, I love Bill Curtis. And he said, you know Bill Curtis? And I said, oh, I've known Bill Curtis for 35 years. I said, we're great friends. It sounds like, you know, bullshit, okay? I'm going, that's bullshit. You he's, gave a specific year, he's, though. He's, going, he's going bullshit. He's, you know, <laughs> yeah, this is right. bullshit. Okay, I put up with this. Okay. Um, anyway, I'm not thinking about that because that's just some, a true thing that right, I'm right. telling it. So we're in this giant beacon theater, and two rows over, I see the back of the head of Bill Curtis. <laughs> so I went, oh, I'll be right back. There's Bill Curtis. Well, Capcella follows me. Right, he wants to see what that is. I saw the Twitter photo. Yeah, so I walk and tap him on the shoulder, and I said, "Don't turn around. I have a gun in your back. This is Don Shaw." And he turned, around, and we just hugged this this great big man bear hug for a long time. And Cupcella's jaw drops, and he goes, "He wasn't lying. He wasn't lying." And I think that's what a lot of people just need to realize. Is that your stories? They sound they crazy. Sound you know, they unbelievable. They do. They sound ridiculous <laughs> most of them. But that's, that's the kind of story I like to tell. Yeah, I, yeah, I like yeah. to tell stories. Where people go, "That's bullshit." Yeah. <laughs> and then you go, "Here, let me show you something." Ninety-eight percent. Yeah. Well, when yeah. you can back it up, that's the. How did you like Anchorman Two? I loved Anchorman Two. I wrote a, an article uh, for Bring Me the News. Was picked up by the um, an opinion piece. It was picked up by the Star Tribune and was run, and I, w- I was interested in what uh, the MSM thought about what I said because uh, the mainstream media, what uh, they thought of this because it was very accusatory. Um, Anchorman 2 uh, nails it. It absolutely nails the horrid, the horrid conditions of journalism today, and it makes it a joke. Right. It makes television journalism a punchline. So does that hurt or help the industry, do you think? Oh, it completely destroys it. And not and not and I'm, you know, less concerned Tony about the industry as I'm concerned about the republic. Mm-hmm. Because if journalism fails, if journalism is taken as a joke, then an informed public which is necessary for uh, a a democracy, for a constitutionally formed democracy and a republic where it is run by the the informed mind of the people. If journalism is not providing information but only interesting stories, there's a line that could have been taken out of our newsroom uh, 15 years ago. Um, Ron Burgundy, sa- he's, he's losing in the ratings. Mm-hmm. And he says, why should we even do news? Why can't we just tell, like, really interesting stories? That'll get people to watch. We do really interesting, like yeah. He said, "Let's not tell people what they need to hear. Let's tell them what they want to hear." Yeah, yeah. And so that's it, always been the dilemma: the need versus want. So it's got to be refreshing now to do things that are, uh, you know, you can still use your talents and you can yeah. still kind of just, you know, pick and choose, right? I mean, it's yeah. Yeah, I can find ways to do um, interesting things. I'm, I'm, I'm myself. I'm going to be starting a podcast probably in 2014. Uh, on the Bernard Network that um, that deals only with uh, science and energy. Renewable energy. 
and it'll be a version of Project Energy that started mm-hmm. the station. And that's, here's an interesting story, Project Energy, which won every Emmy that was ever awarded. Um, but I remember walking in the news director and said, uh, and this is 15 years ago. Right. This is going to be a big issue. Energy is going to be a big issue. Global warming is going to be a big issue. This is before an inconvenient truth. Mm-hmm. And I said, I'd like to do um, a project like with the old station projects where we have all the reporters doing a story uh, a week. They can do their other stories, cover the news, whatever, but have something in their back pocket, long form journalism. And everybody does a story. Then we do a documentary and we do this thing. That's what the projects were that won all the Emmys. Um, and so the news director set up with all of the department heads and I went upstairs to the department heads. I made a presentation. I had, uh, slides, charts, videos, all kinds of stuff, everything from the, from the, uh, U.S. Geological Survey, um, Shell, Exxon, Mobil, I had all their figures, I had BP's figures, um, and I was trying to show them that energy was going to be uh, a big problem and that the whole it didn't have to look like environmental reporting. It could just be the facts. Here are the facts. We've got to face these facts so that we can have some public policy mm-hmm. um, and we can have an informed public pushing up the public policy so Congress will be able to vote on this stuff. And so I came downstairs, and, and thankfully Jeff Kiernan, who was the news director at that time, said, look, you're my friend. <sighs> no matter what they say, I'm going to give you a week, one week. Mm-hmm. Put together five stories. Uh, we'll call it Project Energy. We'll put it in the 10 o'clock news. You won't do a documentary. We'll put it in the 10 o'clock news, B section. Mm-hmm. And we'll do it in April outside of the book so we don't have mm-hmm. to worry about affecting the book at all. But uh, I know this is important to you, and I know this is toward the end of your career. I'm going to let you do this. So we do the five nights. We trample, trample every other station in town. The highest ratings the station has ever gotten for that five-day period. Um, double the ratings. Double the ratings of the other stations combined for five nights. If it weren't for Kiernan, who gave me these five days and then, so anyway, it blows out to 800 stories. Mm-hmm. We did it over, over that uh, four-year period of time. We did wow. 800 wow, stories. Really. And uh, plus my uh, good-to-know segments were often energy-related. <laughs> And during that period of time, uh, people started to get informed. And then the state of Minnesota went to the 2020, uh, that we'd have 20% renewable energy by, uh, and, and, and Tim Pawlenty, a Republican, uh, became the leader on global climate change for the five-state governor's conference. Um, we uh, built uh, more wind than uh, anybody can possibly imagine as the lowest cost uh, energy alternative for uh, XL Energy. Well, we were really moving down that road. We passed the Water Legacy Amendment where people chose to tax themselves three-eighths of a tenth and one percent uh, of new taxes, adding taxes to a state that's already overtaxed, mm-hmm. adding taxes by their own vote. Sixty-eight percent of, of Minnesotans voted to tax themselves more to make sure that we can preserve the water in our environment. How much of this do you think was because of just Project Energy, just that week well, of, of information? It would be wrong for me to say, but let me let me tell you the letters that I received from members of the state legislature and committee chairs saying this would neither of those things would have happened had it not been, and the Public Utilities Commission, had it not been for Project Energy. 
that it would not have happened. Setting trends still. Well, and, and we were doing, we and I, I did, geez, I didn't make any friends in the conservative world. When I came, I, I did a, a full layout on global warming. This is before an inconvenient truth, before Al Gore hits the scene. And I do basically inconvenient truth prior to Al Gore doing it. And, I mean, there were death threats associated with that. And and why why are you going to try to kill me because I'm presenting these facts? Mm-hmm. Why don't you just look at the facts and, uh, and say, let's agree these facts are true and then find a way to solve it? They were just worried that it was some kind of... Um, I have a little sidebar question. Yeah. When I heard, and it became a myth or what not, but uh, running for Congress or running for political office, wh- what's the truth behind that? Did you actually think about that? Because I, I think you'd be phenomenal. Well, thank you. Thank you, Tony. But the uh, yes, it was real. Um, it was nothing I saw it. Uh, I got a phone call from uh, a high individual in uh, the Democratic Party. And I'd been asked to run a number of times over my career by all three parties, uh, the Republicans, the independent, because people didn't know exactly. As what, a legislator or actual uh, governor? Or? That came to me? Yeah. Oh, no, no, that you were going to run for what office would you have? Oh, at the, uh, over the career, it had been everything from state legislator, city council, mayor, uh, governor, uh, senator, <laughs> everything that you can imagine. Um because I think people uh, who just like the idea that there was somebody who could talk sense and maybe try to build a coalition. Mm-hmm. Um, but no, the, uh, the the Democratic National Committee, the Democratic uh, Congressional Campaign Committee uh, came to town and uh, sought me out. And I met with them over a period of time, over a period of a couple of weeks. Showed me all the research for the 3rd District. Uh, that I'd be probably more representative of the third district than the current uh, member of Congress, um, who, who's ultra liberal, whose voting, um, whose voting record is very similar to Michelle Bachman's. But the third is much more liberal. They they, they voted for Obama. They voted for Amy Klobuchar, and uh, they're uh, very serious about the environment. And they voted overwhelmingly to tax themselves more for water. Uh, so they care a great deal about uh, environmental issues, and so. Uh, but one of the questions, Tony, that, that I uh, asked them, I said, and these are this is the DCCC uh, sitting across the table, and I said, does it matter that I'm not a Democrat? <laughs> and they went, you're not a Democrat? <laughs> I said, no. They said, you're a Republican? I said, no. They said, oh, you're an independent. I said, no. <laughs> I'm not anything. You're an American. I, I go where the facts are. <laughs> I'm a journalist. Where the facts go, I go. Um, Closer to a scientist. It, in essence, it is It is scientific, yeah. Ooh. Oh, hang on. So, um, so, getting back to TV for one, I know we're running shorter on time, but we can hit a few more things. What does local television need to do Oh man, this conversation might not be. I know we might not have enough time. (laughs) Logline this one in a sentence or two. What uh, What do you think? Well, it would require. uh, I I, it would require them to read the Constitution. uh, The people who make our uh, policies inside newsrooms um, to realize that we are uh, protected by the First Amendment, the Constitution of the United States, for a reason. 
that the press is protected because it's a fundamental element of uh, freedom. It's a fundamental element of a country that has its people make the decisions that the government carries out. It's bottom-up stuff. And uh, if, if journalists are not about the business of uh, taking the tough questions and examining them and getting uh, some proper answers to the people so that they can be more informed when they go to the election booth and can uh, and pull the lever on the one candidate or group of candidates who are most likely to be able to solve the problem. We're, the, the management has to be reminded that the press is not really um, a guard dog, uh, but a watchdog. And the watchdog basically sits underneath the house, the porch, and doesn't do anything. They just sit there. They don't do anything until somebody tries to get in the gate. Then they run out from under the porch and they bark. They don't bite. They bark. They bark to alert the homeowner, the citizen, mm-hmm. to open the door and look and see who's standing at the gate trying to get in. And it could be a bad guy. Or it could be the mailman. Um, that determination is not the press's to make, whether uh, I should bite this person or the mailman. I should, I'm not biting anybody. I'm not, I'm not that guard dog. I'm not the attack dog. I just am the alarm sounder. And then you come out and look at that and go, hmm, that's the mailman. I'm not going to do anything. Hmm, that's a burglar. I'm going to call the police. Um, and, and no one's barking. We're just not barking anymore. We're just telling wonderful stories about a woman who uh, was nine months pregnant or eight months pregnant and, and flew to Colorado and, um, and had a premature baby in Colorado. That was the lead story on Channel 11 the other night. Lead. The lead damn story. Does that story belong in a newscast? Yeah, that belongs in a newscast in the B section somewhere. Oh, by the way. Or a kicker. Yeah, a kicker. At the very end. No, but this was the lead story. And why was it the lead story? Because they had it alone. They had her exclusively. They were in Colorado at her bedside talking. And uh, she delivered a healthy baby and fine. The husband's there by the side. There's and nothing, nothing extraordinary. Nothing happened. Yeah. Nothing happened. It was the lead story. They were alone. But it was a story. And people love stories. And that was the brilliance of Mike Sullivan in the I-Team was that we're going to do these in-depth, very tough, mean, cutthroat, nut-cutting investigations but they will, they will be in a story form. You will tell a story, almost like uh, creative nonfiction. You, take, you, you develop a story that people could read chapter, 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 and you'd unfold the story in dramatic fashion because once you have the facts assembled, you can arrange the facts any way you want to, and you can do cliffhangers on one night. Mm-hmm. What happens next? And I'll draw them into the next. So, so all of these things had this, this great... Uh, literary value that that Mike wanted to put into the stories, uh, even though it was a litany of prosecutorial facts where you could say this evidence, this evidence, this evidence proves this, and you could do it in one piece. We would run it over five nights and tell the stories and the personalities and develop the characters and who were they. And at the end, laws were changed. Uh, there are 17 laws in the books in the state of Minnesota that came directly out of the I-team mm-hmm. and the entire EMS system that we have today is based on the recommendations I made um, at the end of a 
a really, really nasty investigation of the current, the existing uh, EMS system mm-hmm. that was killing people. Right. And, and we proved that they were killing people and uh, or letting people die, not getting there on time, just being inefficient. And then I made a list of 12 recommendations, and uh, within a year, those 12 recommendations were adopted in law. And the and then I won two years ago. Somebody, uh, the EMS system in the state of Minnesota, presented me with a Pioneer uh, Award, and in the in handing it to me, saying, "What we what you guys you're talking to the assembled uh, paramedics and EMS technicians, what we have today is what he told us to get." Mm-hmm. Do you miss that kind of work? Ago. I mean, do you miss uh, not only for yourself, but the fact that you're not seeing it Jeez. as much locally or even, I mean, obviously nationally there are certain shows that still do that kind of work, but do you miss doing that in-depth, you know... Ball-busting. Gut-wrenching, you know, that, that, that just truthful, Changing. truthful broadcasting? Um, let me liken it to a... Uh, as I liken almost everything to some basketball analogy. Um, the arc of a uh, basketball player, they start out in the sixth grade and you learn how to play some basketball and you're learning the fundamentals of the game and you're not really doing much and you get better if you keep practicing and you keep practicing and then you get in high school and you do pretty good maybe get a college uh, scholarship and you start playing college ball and then you go to the pros and you play pro ball and and by now you've played almost 30 years of basketball um and every other night and it's wearing and it's, and it's tiresome it's 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 joyful that you're, you're able to do this kind of stuff and and uh, uh have the uh the respect of the, the people and they're in the stands are paying tickets to watch you play. But at some point your legs start to go. And there's, and, and in my book, I point out that there is no point in playing past the point of effectiveness. There's no point in playing past the point of exhaustion. Now you're hurting. Now you're, now you're not doing well. So what happens to the great players? Well, some of them just take their money and run. Others retire and play baseball. Others retire. <laughs> One of them did. <laughs> Um, uh, and and I think that was a lot of showing off, but um, <laughs> we're hiding but, from gambling deaths. But in the old days, not so much uh, today. I don't I don't expect LeBron James ever to coach basketball. But what happens, like Danny Ainge and some of the great uh, coaches, they they move from playing to coaching. And so my transition in the last. Uh, four years on at CCO, is I'd stopped playing. I wasn't in the game. There were younger, better legs that could do this stuff. And as long as I was the coach, then I could I could point them. I could teach them the moves, the passes, the plays, how to get to where they wanted to go. Um, and then the game starts to change. And Maybe you don't even want to coach. Maybe you don't like the game anymore. And that's where I am. I don't like the game. Mm-hmm. Uh, that's that's a, a perfect analogy. I mean, for anybody who understands sports, that just... And with all that said, I mean, you have such a wide array of interests, and, and you're so great at different <laughs> things. 
what's next? What is left here? What are you going after? There's so much, and you're just getting started here. you got all the tools. Well, I think that uh, there are some, I have to narrow it down. What uh, can I do? What am I capable of doing? Where can I have the most impact? And uh, my hope is that um, there are very serious challenges uh, facing the United States besides uh, the issues of war, uh, which are going to be around us for a long, long time. Um, there are some, some things that are sneaking up on the backside of us that uh, will make these wars pale by comparison um, to make our, the NSA's eavesdropping pale by comparison uh, because these are going to be things we can't control. Wars we can control. We actually can control uh, how much warfare we're involved in. We can actually control how much eavesdropping uh, that we're going to put up with or allow the government to do. Um, but if we continue down this path, uh, we, uh, the path of our mindless um, juicing of the atmosphere uh, with carbon dioxide, that uh, we are about to reach a tipping point where if we don't move quickly, uh, the, the world that we know is going to change so dramatically, so dramatically and so quickly that you can't get it back. And everything collapses. The economy collapses. Starvation ensues. Uh, water is depleted. Mm -hmm. And so I'm talking about Earth. I'm, I'm more concerned about what we're doing to the planet mm -hmm. and whether we can reach some agreement through uh, intelligent discussion, uh, absolute fact, and get away from ideology. Where, uh, where I saw the other day on television, they made a pass at some uh, global warming environment energy issue, and they had uh, a Nobel laureate climate scientist talking with a person who disagreed who was an economist. <laughs> what? No, no, no. You, this is not the conversation you have. This is not really a conversation you have. An economist doesn't talk to a scientist about facts of science. You can't, an economist can't say, oh, you're all wrong. It's the planet's not really warming. What do you know about it, asshole? <laughs> what in the world do you know about it? This person is saying, here are the facts. Mm -hmm. This person is saying, I don't want the facts to be true. So, we say, uh, do you believe in global warming? I would never say that. It's, it's not a faith system. It's not a belief system. No more than two plus two, do you believe is four or do you know it's four? Do you know two plus two is four? Yes, you know it because you can calculate that. You can figure out how two plus, you can put two, beans down on one side and two beans down on the other side and you can go one two three four yep there are four there hmm. it's true i can see that i don't believe mm -hmm. it doesn't require any any degree of faith in that math i know it's true and so people who believe on one side or believe uh on the other they're not part of the argument they're not saying it right you can say on this side, I don't like what it will cost us to uh, stop this from happening. And the other side saying, if you don't 
spend the money now. You won't have any money to spend on it later. So all I want people to do is agree there's a problem. The solution, that's your business. Mm -hmm. That's public policy. I never get involved in public policy. You guys figure out how to solve the problem. At least agree there's a problem. And so, so Catalyst to get people talking about. That's right. And so all I'm going to do now is make it impossible uh, for those people who would uh, listen to a podcast or listen to me on TPT, um, public radio, wherever I uh, am given a forum, that uh, my goal is to make it an inescapable truth that this is a problem, mm-hmm. that no matter what party you come from, no matter what side of the ide- ideological divide you come from, you will have to, unless you're an idiot, unless you are an absolute idiot with your head square up your ass or in the sand, you must say, yes, that's a problem. We can see that that's a problem. We can see that 2 plus 2 is 4, and it doesn't require any degree of faith or belief. Now, let's approach this from a conservative or liberal point of view on how we solve the problem. How do you do that? Do you use a free market methodology, or do you do it uh, as a centralized government approach through mandates? We can do it either way. The problem is a free market uh, solution might take uh, 60 years to get up and running and get the wheels turning on it. And if you do that, then um, time runs out. Cutting it close. Yeah, you don't have time to get it done. That's the official Don Shelby battle cry right now. Yeah. Get it done. Well, I got to thank you. I mean, we both thank you for, for letting us come to your home and, and sit down with you and talk with you for an hour or so. Um, where are people going to be able to see, read, and hear you right now? Well, I'm still uh, writing uh, from time to time for Bring Me the News. Um, I, am, uh, I have 11 documentaries um, in the hopper at TPT. Uh, the History Channel, I'm, I've done uh, Two America Unearthed for uh, the History Channel, and uh, they're talking about trying to spin off their, uh, my own show. Through committee films. Episodic, through committee. Right. Yeah. And they're pushing that. Um, I'm in discussions that, with Scripps Howard uh, on an HGTV thing called This Old Greenhouse. That's what I was going to ask you about. Yeah. And uh, so that would be instead of uh, going in and flipping houses or, or coming in and rebuilding houses, you would go into the house and uh, it would be a, a stock already built like an uh, old mm-hmm. uh, 1920s house in North Minneapolis and build that house out uh, so that it uh, used no um, energy. Mm-hmm. So you're busy. And the Tom Bernard pa- podcast, of course. And then you've done some acting, obviously. Yeah, uh, I'm still doing the Mark Twain show. and uh, But you were just in one film, t- or one song as well, correct? Right, I just yeah. finished that. Yeah, okay. Yeah, that movie. Okay. I think we're done. Yeah, thank you. It's official. It's official.